You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Peter, who is the current chairman and CEO at Demand Science. Peter is a senior executive with proven experience as a strategic leader of large and mid-market public and private technology companies in both growth and turnaround modes. Between his CEO roles and his service on numerous corporate and nonprofit boards, he has been privileged to work alongside some of the top people in the best venture and private equity firms. Throughout his career, he has been a consistent creator of business scale, value, and superior returns for investors and shareholders. On today's show, we talk about what's it like for a company to have completed seven acquisitions in the global market without taking institutional capital? How does one go about creating a synergistic acquisition strategy among companies they don't even own yet? Who does more due diligence on a company, a venture capitalist, a private equity group, or an outside person about to join a company as a new CEO? What are the key features one should look at for assembling a board for a company that has ambitions to go public and much more? You're going to enjoy today's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now let's begin. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Peter, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley Podcast. I'm super excited for you to be here. And your company has done amazing things in such a short amount of time. But before we really dive into the nitty gritty, can you give our audience a brief background of your career up until this point? John, thanks. It's great to be here with you, be part of the Silicon Valley podcast. And uh, hello to all your, your listeners. Yeah, I've, I've been uh, doing this for a very long time. I, I've spent years as a, as a public president CEO, a company called PC Connection. And then I worked in venture capital and private equity. I was with General Callis and Excel as a portfolio CEO for a company called Onforce which we exited uh, to Adeco Global in 2014. I then went out to work with Fortress Private Equity in New York and, and part of the New Media Investment Group, where I, where I spent uh, five years building uh, a digital business as part of New Media Invest- Investment Group. Had tremendous success there. Then figured I'd try the venture and private equity side, and I joined Optum Ventures for about a year and a half as a general partner and got a chance to get a taste of what it was like to write the checks versus ask for checks. And I was always good at raising money, but learned a lot and uh, have a lot of respect for that side of the table. But realized that I really like being an operator and like building building part of this. Being a, a venture capitalist or a private equity, you're, you're doing a lot of different companies at once. I like doing one company at once. So I, I got this opportunity here at Demand Science, which was pure B2B. We rebranded to Demand Science and been here about a year and a half, Sean. And it's just been an incredible run. We're building a great excitement in the demand generation and, and sales intelligence space and delighted to be here. Now, it's very rare to get someone on our show that's really sat on both sides of the table. When you're doing that, how does one go about negotiating, whether they're on the investor side or the entrepreneur side, so they really get what they want? That's a great question. And I think, I think one of the, the things that, that you learn as you whether you're out, you're raising capital or you're sitting on the side looking at, at, at making investments, is really have a story that resonates. Really, when a, an investor is looking at a company, they're looking at a couple of things. Does this company have the wherewithal for the long term? 
does this company have a product that is, could be transformational or disruptive to the space that it's in? And you start there. If it's an early stage investment, Sean, it really is around the fact that can we help this, this management team, the CEO, this entrepreneur with the right um, infrastructure things around that person and capital to scale this product to, to greatness? If it's mid or later stage, the thinking about is what can we do to help this, help this product or set become more mainstream? And what, what would it take to do that? So I think the Candidly, when you're raising money in the earlier stage, which I'd done and also in the later stage, the thing for me always was to really have a compelling story that resonates with the investor. And then sitting on the other side of the table, the investor needs to get it in the first minute. If they don't get get the story in the first minute, they're not going to invest. They really got to understand what you do, the market you serve, the buyers you're trying to sell to in that first minute. You have to be very simple and resonating with your story. Speaking of getting everything in that first minute, I'll hear a lot of entrepreneurs say, we're the Uber of this or we're the Lyft of that. How many times when you're on the investor side, did you hear people say this, we are this? Do you even recommend people doing that comparison or not? It's a great point. And I would rather as an investor have an entrepreneur tell me the TAM of the market they're going after and why they're differentiating in the market. What differentiates them? If you're going to try to get investors to come in, Sean, and, and be part of, your, part of your story, if you're going to say you're going to be the, your Lyft to Uber, your Pepsi to Coke, something like that, you're basically saying, I'm a me too. So I, I, the first thing I'm going to get to is, so what's special about you that's going to allow me to think that you can leapfrog a lot of the players? I don't have to, if you tell me out of the gate, I'm playing in a $70 billion TAM, total, total adjustable market. And in this total adjustable market, there's five players. And those five players are whoever those players are. And here's what they're doing well. And here's what they're not doing well. And here's what we're doing that is going to allow us to define and why clients are going to buy from us and why they need us. You have to create the fact that there's a need in the market. I caution entrepreneurs that, well, we're the Lyft to Uber or Pepsi to, it's, it's always a difficult play to do that. And, and it can be risky because you could lose your, uh, lose your audience. Talking about the investor side of the table, when you're with private equity, what's really interesting is a private equity group, they're known for investing in a company, taking over a company, three, four years later, having this amazing exit where maybe they were growing 20% every year, 30% every year. But that company that they took over might have been stagnant for a while. How does a private equity group kind of know, or do they have any tricks or strategies to go into one of these companies and just kind of turbocharge it where that founder may have not been able to have done it in the past? Yeah, so that's a great question, Sean. I think one of the things to, to know, every private equity firm is different, but most of them have one core. They all have their playbooks. So what they do is they, they have a specific playbook, Sean, that looks at sales and go-to-market, marketing, finance operations, and things like that. And they, what they're doing is when they're, when they're looking at a management team, if it's a younger management team, entrepreneurs that have not done it at that scale, they have to bring the playbook in to help the entrepreneurs to be able to execute on the playbook, like sports, like uh, in football, being able to execute the plays 
so that they can get scale. Because a lot of times as you're trying to build your business, there's a lot of things that are basic blocking and tackling and things that need to get done and how to get done. What private equity firms will also do, and they, depending on who they are and what they're trying to do, they'll also offer operating partners to come in and kind of sit alongside the management team to help the management team with specific areas, subject matter areas like operations, like finance, like sales and go-to-market. In some cases, they'll even uh, help recruit some executives that have done it at the levels they level where the company is to scale it to help build that. So that's how they kind of leverage their investment, Sean, when they take it over and help the entrepreneurs grow. Now, that's good and bad. I mean, someone like our organization, when you have, I've been a 20-year CEO and most of my team have done it. That's not what we would need. We're more interested in a very different type of private equity firm that is more strategic in M&A and helping us think about how we can scale to much larger players. So you have to, it also is the type of private equity firm you want to work with. And the other thing is an entrepreneur has got to sign up for that they're going to be treated and micromanaged very differently with that because the private equity firm's got to protect their investment. How different do you think the micromanagement or the governance or input from the outside is when it's a VC that's invested versus a private equity group that maybe invested or kind of took over? So venture capital, for the most part, you know, except for the growth of firms, are going to be very much hands-on because they're earlier stage, right? So they could be Series A, Series B. So they're really trying to augment and add value, not only with the capital that they're putting in, Sean, but with the ability for them to help. And really, venture capital is all about growth, right? So really what you're, you're looking for is getting the product in market, getting the product accelerating in scale, getting it scale, and then later in, on the process, turning to profitability and trying to bring that up. But really, venture capital money usually is there for what it is, is really to create growth, to create the market, to find the market and get the, the presence in the market. Private equity comes in and I look at it more as really the thinking of, okay, we've got a growth business now. How do we make it a profitable business? How do we help them really operate this business to growth and profitability and the ability to create something that can be exitable? And that could be with a strategic exit, an IPO, or to another financial strategic partner. But each venture capital and private equity each fit a specific journey of the company. For the most part, you don't see private equity in earlier stage plays. You see them more in mid or later stage. And then you also see private equity also bringing additional capital to the table to aggregate several different where the M&A becomes important, right? They might be trying to aggregate three or four companies together to create a larger company that can solve for the organic growth and move the needle faster so that you can get a company that was at 30 million, get it to 150 million in a year to two years with the right creative and complementary acquisitions. And they're very good at that. Before asking about a couple of due diligence questions, kind of curious from the eyes, from the private equity side, when looking at a company, what's their train of thought when they're thinking, is this a platform company to add others to and build, or this is a company to add to a platform company or attach? Kind of what's the view from the outside when they're looking at a company, kind of the positioning? When you look at a company, is it a product or is it a company? And I think that is, it, is a product getting some legs and doing okay and scaling, but could it be a standalone platform 
for scale with predictable revenue and growth? Or what does it need several other tuck-in type plays to complete that play? A core platform play really is something unique that's got a great usability. That's a lot that's easy for to use that really that brings a customer into it that where they're, whether it's free or whatever, where they're engaged in the platform, they're using the platform and they're, they're solving for something that they need to be sticky and part of, that, part of that. So it becomes part of their daily work, right? So in sales and marketing, like a HubSpot, are you inside? Salesforce is a great example of a platform, right? And then you have tuck-in product suites that are acquired that allow you to enhance your experience in that platform. So when you're looking at your business, I think you solve for, do have I built a great product or do I have the uniqueness of a platform that can bring somebody in and keep them engaged and keep them interacting in the platform? You also have to be mindful too of in the world that we are today, there's Salesforce, there's other unique platforms. So are you going to be in another platform for a user to use or are you going to exist in the existing platforms and be a scalable product that just solves within the platforms that are, are relevant today. Okay. Now, who also does more due diligence on a company, a venture capitalist, private equity group, or potentially a new COO or CEO coming in to take over the company? Dil- due diligence as defined by what is done for private equity versus what is done for venture capital. So when you're doing on the venture capital side, your due diligence is different because of the stage of the company. The company is probably does not have the financial reporting and things like that, that with quality of revenue and all of those things, because they're early and they just haven't done that. So really, there's a real hard look at the product that's been built, the market that is that the product's going to play in, the technology the team around that, the CEO or, or the team, really, the CEO is, is really key there, the entrepreneur, the visionary of the business. And can we partner with this person? And can he or she help us with our investment for growth and scale? Private equity, because you're more later stage, is going to really be looking at a more historical approach of the business, Sean. Might go back two to three years. We're probably looking hard at the type of attrition that you've had with customers, retention. They're going to be looking at quality of revenue, the margins of the business, and is the, uh, is the business, can the business be profitable? That's a very different diligence part of this. The other thing with private equity and a diligence, they're going to hire outside consultants to, to come in as experts to, to look at the market and things because the check size is going to be much bigger than the check size of, of venture capital. And now for the current company you're at, you didn't found it. It was founded, I believe, is 2012, but you've been the current CEO for the last year and a half, and there's been explosive growth. When this opportunity kind of arised, who talked to who? What was the dance like of going back and forth to negotiate? Hey, we want to incentivize you to come on board and take over the helm. Yeah, it, this was a unique one, Sean, because there's no, inst- in our demand side, there's no institutional capital. To the credit of the two founders, they built a business on a bootstrap, right? And they, they basically worked hard to, to drive, drive revenue and, and manage their costs efficiently. And, and when I came in, they had decided that the, one of the founders decided they were ready for a, a professional CEO to come in, somebody to come in. And there was the thought process, there was a vision by the two founders that this could become 
really the company that it is today. There was a North Star thinking that we could be the next bigger tech target and or Zoom info in what we were doing in the space and, and what was building. So when I, I was actually recruited by a Boston recruiter, executive recruiter, that called me up and said, would you meet with these two founders? I went and met with the founders, Sean, and over the summer of 2020, and I said, this is incredible vision, incredible what's here and the opportunity of this business and where this business could go. I had two investor founders that wanted to go big and said, we can build work. We want to support you build something special and unique in the market. I couldn't have asked for a better opportunity knowing being somebody that was worked for venture capital and some of the top venture capital firms in the, in the world and private equity and working for those and also knowing. So they have a play in themselves and I'd be happy to work for any of them. But the uniqueness of this really gave us an interesting opportunity, Sean, because we've been able to go very fast. The founders have really given me the ability to bring in the folks that needed to be brought in, look at acquisitions and scale the business. And we just have had incredible growth. I'm blessed in the fact that we're in a, a TAM market that's huge. I'm blessed in the fact that we have a unique offering that we're providing. And as I said to you earlier, with the entrepreneurs, when you have those things, you really have a lot of tailwinds behind you to build something special. Peter, I also want to ask, you'd mentioned professional CEO. A lot of people, they believe once you're a CEO, you're always a CEO. And if you're the CEO, your reputation's on the line. If the company does great, you take a lot of the credit. If it does bad, you take all the blame. What goes in your mind before accepting that role of, hey, this could make or break my career, this one decision? What's going on in there? So I always triangulate it, Sean, into three things. Okay. So for me, it's always I start with the investors. Who are the investors? Can I work with the investors and board, a board or investors? Can I work with them? Are they going to be someone that we're going to have a great partnership? Because it starts there. Because if I don't have, or if the CEO does not have that, it's going to be a, a challenge. The second is the market. Is this a market that could be transformed or disrupted? Is there a need for the service and or product that is being, that this company has? And can you scale this to something special and the, the, the total addressable market? The last point on the triangle is the team. Is, as I look at the culture of the existing company and the team in place, what do I have and what do I need? And am I going to have the ability to solve for that quickly for the scale? If I can answer those three questions, Sean, then it's a win for me. And I'm willing to take that risk as a CEO. Okay. And now coming on board to the, the new company, an existing company that's been around, they have a culture. What was that transition like at the very beginning? How was your onboarded to the head of this ship? Yeah. So I, I think for any new CEO coming in, it's a very important transition at the beginning is to because to understand the culture that's in place, Sean, and, the, and how you can adapt to that culture and also start to think about being part of the culture and creating your own defining of the culture. I was fortunate in that I worked for, I, the two founders had a, built an incredible culture of caring, partnership. People really liked working at Pure B2B with Not Demand Science, our company. With that, my style as a CEO, since I was going back to PC Connection, always has been 
very people first, understanding who they are, what they want to accomplish. In part, that's a collective effort, not just one person driving this. And I really, to me, it's about doing the things right for the team. So that culture was there. So for me, the challenge I had was Zoom. I mean, the fact that we weren't, we were COVID and I'm used, I very much like the human interaction and being able to talk to people live. That really wasn't possible back in 2020. So a lot of this was done over Zoom, like we're doing today. That can come out in, in Zoom too. And I really spent a lot of time making sure people understood that I was that type of CEO, that type of leader, that there was a vision. And I think another very important part of a new CEO coming in is to quickly be able to establish where we're going, where the company's going, what is the vision? People want to know, who are we? What are we doing? Where are we going? And if you get people excited about that, then some of the other things get kind of have a way of taking care of themselves. So the uniqueness for me, Sean, in learning and meeting with the founders and seeing this business, I kind of knew pretty quickly where we needed to go with the business and, where, and the market. So I quickly was able to articulate that to the company and, and people got really excited about it. Now, speaking about where the company's going, you've done seven acquisitions without any institutional capital. Yes. Well, we're first and foremost, we're a very profitable company. We have, um, we have 78% gross margins in the 30% range. So we're very profitable. We're a well-run company with great products that, that drive high margin. And, and that's, that's the, to the credit of this organization and the execution of the organization how we do things. Start there. And then we spent time, we also have a great partner in JP Morgan, who is our, our credit facility and banker. And with the EBITDA that we have, we're able to also use our own cash to do these acquisitions and also use some leverage, uh, debt leverage to, to acquire. The other part is these of these seven acquisitions we've done, Sean, all of them were not venture back. They were entrepreneurs, global entrepreneurs, that were in a spot that had built incredible technology and products that were looking for their next part of their journey, which was to raise additional, to go raise capital. Some of them had done some early raises, but we got a chance, I got a chance, my chief strategy officer, Bill Herring, got a chance to talk to them about what we were doing in our journey and get them excited about the fact that bring your company on board with ours, we're going to create something even bigger and that multi billion dollar demand generation player that is yet to exist in this $70 billion TAM. And so these seven acquisitions have not only been about the technology product shine, we've also brought incredible, super terrific talent, smart people globally that are now part of this. I mean, we have four former Silicon Valley CTOs that are on our staff driving technology, thinking about the next S-curve of where we're going. So we're, we're, we're all about innovation and we're spending a lot of our investment of our, pro we think about profitability, not only in take care of our folks, but also investing in the next S-curve, the next important part of what sales and marketing professionals are going to need um, in the next three to five years. And we're, so we're building the existing um, business really well with the, the demand gen and, and our list intelligence, sales intelligence list builders, but also we got some exciting stuff, Sean, that's going to be coming out later next year, that's going to be game changing. 
So we're going to have to dive more into that a little bit later in the interview, really niche down on the company. But even before next year and the years to come, I'm really curious. We did talk about a little bit about the I, the mindset of the private equity looking in. How much of that background influenced the companies you picked, your vision for when you're acquiring these seven companies? How much of that insight that you've taken from the past were part of the success of these? I think everything in life's a building, right? A building blocks. And I mean, I've had over the years, I've I've learned from great mentors and past investors and and people that why a, a venture capital firm thinks that this is an interesting investment, why a private equity firm thinks this is an interesting investment. What are some of the things that are important to the to building that out? And taking that information and taking the the learnings that I had over that time, Sean really has kind of given me the ability to just have really more street smart about the things that we're going to need. What is it about a company that you're, you want to acquire or join your company that's innovative, that's accretive, it's complementary, that can be integrated, that really can be part of the story? That is kind of something venture capital has a playbook that they think about on how they want to look at investing and, like, and what for growth and and private equity, the same, where at more profitability and more aggregation roll-up strategy. I think what I've taken out of this is more of the roll-up strategy here, because I'm looking at these unique tuck-in, and not only tuck-in, some game-changing. Ladero was an incredible acquisition for us from basically, it's, a, it's Zoom Info. We, create, we have a, a Zoom Info type product that allows us to now exist for both the sales and marketing professional in one company. So the thing was for us was, is how to you do you become that single point solution that can solve in one company? So that's part of the thinking. So a lot of the, over the years, Sean, I, I've just been fortunate to learn a lot from both venture and private equity and also other CEOs that I've admired and I've seen do really well in the space. And with that, when you're taking in these new companies, when you're bringing the cultures together when you're combining everyone, I would guess none of this would be possible without kind of the CEO having those strong leadership skills. How do those leadership skills develop as the company grows exponentially? Yeah, it's, it's a great point. I think a lot of the, from a CEO, is there's, a, there's ability of experience and confidence, okay? So when you're first time CEO, Sean, you're going to make some mistakes and you're going to you're really getting exposed to both where you're managing it and you're building a team, right? And you're, you, as you're building the team, as a CEO, you got to understand that you aren't the end-all be-all, that it's very important that you need the specialist, the financial specialist, the sales specialist, the marketing, people that surround you that can go do, do this well. And your job is that once you've laid out the vision for them, is to support them to be able to do that. And make sure that they have everything that they need, they can do the job. That also, so that process gives you confidence. The other part is you're managing a board, you're managing investors for the first time. And that's unique in the law. And that's where sometimes venture capital and or private equity can be helpful because they become the mentor to the CEO and kind of help guide the CEO in some of the thinking and what they're trying to do and, how, and why they're trying to do this and helping that CEO move, he or she move faster with trying to do that. So some of it is, is that over time, 
And then as you start to do that, John, you start to, you get experience, right? You've, you've seen something, you start, you get the learnings, you've, you've seen that movie before a couple of times and you say, okay, I, I don't want to go that route. And you also get better at hiring great people. The biggest thing for a successful CEO and their leadership is surrounding themselves with the best possible team to drive the business and understanding that they are part of that. They're not the end-all, be-all. They're part of this team that's going to take this, this company to the next level. So not only is the company changing this whole time, kind of the market, especially with the pandemic, has as well. I'm kind of curious, sales professionals before the pandemic and now, how has that changed with using data? How is their kind of their going about things changed maybe permanently? In this Omicron variant, just as I'll come back to this in a second, pre-COVID, Sean, we were going to more of a digital economy, right? And sales and marketing professionals were already starting to find ways to use data differently, to use data to make it more actionable to drive revenue. What I mean by that is data for a sales and marketing professional really is about the most accurate and healthy names, like whether it's a contact, a company, a technology install, whatever profile that's important for that specific, for the marketing professional and being able to be able to turn that into a a qualified, powerful lead and or list for contact that they can turn into revenue. Well, that was all changing and, and we were moving in that direction with data. COVID hit and what stopped was we used to have ways that sales and marketing professionals used to do things like events, as an example going to Vegas, New York, and there were big industry events and things that we got together and we were able to to network and we were able to do things. What happened was with COVID, we all had to start figuring out how to do that more digitally online and be able to do that through the tools that were available to us online, whether it's through our Zoom meetings, through our LinkedIn profiles, whatever that is. Well, how do I take that data, make it actionable and be able to drive, be able to drive powerful intelligence and leads and or listed to sell my products. That's where companies like Demand Science have come in because we solve for that now. Because I think, Sean, Omicron's as a great example. Even myself, we're all thinking about next year, 2022, and we're starting to do our budgeting for next year. And I think the reality that's hitting us is COVID's going to be around for a while. It may not be the pandemic that it is, but it's a global endemic and it's going to continue. And it means that we may not be able to travel as much. We may not be able to do the things. And we've already figured out ways to do it differently as sales and marketing professionals. And I think sales and marketing professionals are now becoming adaptive to these new ways to do things in this digital economy. And companies like mine and a few other players out there, the tech targets, the Zoom infos that are out there today are now going to become relevant and meaningful players for the long term. And, and that was really when I saw when I joined in 2020. There was a little bit of that for me that I was thinking that the world was going to change. And I didn't think it was going to change so dramatically and drastically, but it did. And obviously, we're just delighted to be able to, to be able to take care of clients the way we do by just giving them really accurate and healthy data that is actionable, that they can build the best leads or lists to drive revenue. How much of the outside economics of the world should a company be? thinking about incorporating in their strategy plan for the next year or two. I mean, we just talked about 
the pandemic maybe being around a lot longer than, well, certainly longer than everyone has thought. How much has that influenced or should influence a CEO's planning, especially when their company is in that hyper growth mode? I always believe, and this is something I do, and I, I, when I build a plan, a budget, a strategic plan for a year, Sean, I build it in six-month increments. I have my team. We manage six months because six months in this world, day and age is a lifetime. What we do is we have a year and we build our, we begin with the end in mind and we say, this is where we want to end 2022. And we build a plan that is what I'll call mid-stage. So there's a, always a stretch of where you want to go, but then there's a will come most likely case that you're going to build your expense budget around and your growth plan on. But then you reserve the right at the end of June to come back to your board and say, I need to either bring that up or bring that down based on what the external markets are going to show. We don't have crystal balls, right? We don't know what's going to happen in the global markets except what we think is going to happen. So we have to have a, you have to build in a little bit of flexibility and an ability of financial rigor and thoughtfulness so that you're prepared for anything in this world. So build a team, but don't front load everything into the first half of the year. Build, crawl, walk, run your budget, your, your strategic plan. Start your year, start investing, start doing the things that you need to do. Be mindful of what's going on in the markets. If you're scaling quickly and you're doing well, put more in fast, right? Move fast and just keep cranking it up. So by the time you hit June, you just keep cranking away. If something terrible or the markets are just go the wrong way, you can scale back and you can survive it with the existing profitability and cash that you have on hand. And you don't get caught where you have to do a layoffs or any of those things. Now, I'm not sure if you remember before when we were planning for this meeting, this interview, you said one thing, intent over time. Yes. If you remember that, can you dive a little bit deeper into what that means? What does that mean to you? Part of the way we think about our data and what we do is that our, part of some of our, we'll call it our secret sauce, some of our technologies, what we're able to do, Sean, is that when you think about a specific customer buyer of your product, right, that there are certain things that that buyer of your product is going to engage. And they're going, they might engage in January with looking at specific re content readings and things about your product, but they may not be ready to buy and not be buying. So what we provide is the ability of giving you that intent over time, that intent could be growing in February and March by what they're doing online, by how they're, by what they're visiting and where they're going, where we can come back to our clients and say, Pete Canoni is getting ready to buy that, buy that new car and he's going to buy it in May because He's gone and done all of this. So we give our clients that much of the, of the profile of the data based on public information that's given by the fact that what the client's doing online. And that then we make your hit rate for a sale that much better by the fact when I call you and say, John, you ready to buy that car? And by the way, here's my offer. And you go, oh, great. I mean, we ought to be much more successful with that. And we do that globally for our clients. Okay. And now for a company that the growth has been amazing. I'm guessing the growth is going to continue at this rate, maybe even more. No one knows if in, in the future there is that, hey, we're going to go public, but let's hypothetically say something like that. How does one prepare or plan or gather an, a board, assemble a board 
how does a startup or a company go about doing that with the anticipation of a potential exit, maybe going public or something like that in the future? My counsel to CEOs and entrepreneurs is for the stage of your company. So let's start with if you're earlier stage. And Sean, I went through this, so I've had experience on all levels. The first thing you should do is if you're an earlier stage CEO is find subject matter specialists that can be on your board. What I mean by that? Find a really good financial person. Doesn't have to be a CEO, but somebody that can be helpful and mindful to your VP of finance. Find a great product person that can be helpful with product strategy and can help you with that. Maybe an operating person and a sales and marketing person. That should be your board alongside your investors, right? To do that. So you have your investors and have two or three independents that bring specialty to your business to help you with your strategic growth growth strategies. And that way, you're able to, when you have a board meeting, Sean, you can have meaningful and mindful discussions about the strategy of the business. And you can get, you can lean on these people that can help you with their own experiences of saying, hey, I did it this way, and they can be helpful to the team for that growth. So that's a first. As you get, the company continues to mature in the journey. As a CEO, in addition, once again, investors set aside, your independent board members should look at people that have done this in a public market or a larger scale, 100, 200, 300 million that have done it at scale. And you should look at a financial, maybe retired CFO, existing CFO that can serve as audit committee and help you with compliance. You want to find maybe a, an existing CEO operator, or some operator that has done this, that can be helpful to you in kind of scaling the business and running the business. Once again, complementing your investors. And then maybe look for a marketing, sales, or product person that can also be mindful and helpful to you on your journey. But you're looking for a more sophisticated board member as your company gets larger, because should you go to the IPO market, those are the board members that are going to help you get to that, where you basically, all an IPO is, you're basically allowing the public to buy your stock, to to buy part of your company. So you want to have the best possible board members to represent you when the public owns you. How important is maintaining past relationships when finding these potential people for your board or finding people to work at your company? How important is having these great relationships from the past to lean upon for what you're doing today? It's probably one of the greatest parts of my fortunate success of my career is the fact that most of the folks that are here now with me, board, with the exception of the investors, have worked with me at some point in my career. I, I've been very fortunate that I now have 14 sitting CEOs that were worked on my teams at some point of their, their careers. And, and I was always, I, I'm most proud of that, that I've seen these people able to take their, their careers and become C-level executives and feel like I was a part of that as part of nurturing their growth. That comes back to you in in many ways. And part of it is when you work great partnership with people and they've they've really enjoyed working with you, when you get to a new company like I got to, and I made some calls and said, I'd like you to come work, they dropped everything and came. And that that being able to collect and and bring together this incredible, talented group of of executives and and folks, part of this is really 99% of the battle. Of being able to, being able to do that, I would tell people 
especially CEOs, make, continue your careers, network, get to know people, stay in touch with people. You never know in your career or your journey, your career journey, when somebody could be helpful to you. And that could be a board seat, that could be an advisory seat, or it could be an executive on your, on your team. Because people, I, I think the best part about working together is you want to have fun while you're doing this. You spend a lot of time together. It's a stressful thing. And when you really enjoy the company of the people that, that you work with, it, it's a game changer. And it makes you want to do it forever. And you're not, you never think about anything but about we're having a great time with great people and we're disrupting a market. We're transforming a market and we're collectively having great success. Well, as a company scales, are there any signs that maybe it's growing too fast for some or that, hey, I need to increase my skill level to keep pace with what's going on? How Are there any signs or that when looking at different positions in the company of still great fit, it's time to look for someone else or this person is going above and beyond that, that role and really is accelerated? You know, Sean, that's a, it's a great question. I think you have, as a CEO or as a leader, you have to understand where your company's at in the journey it's in, right? And I think one of the things that you have to understand is that an executive that or a management or leader that is doing something at 10 million may not be the right person at 100 million. And that's not a bad thing. It's just what their skill set is. And a lot of times in earlier stage companies, you're doing many things. You're not just doing one thing. And as your company grows, you start to specialize and you have to specialize your leadership. As you specialize your leadership, you're specializing for scale and growth. So what I would say to folks is hire for the, where you're at, but also for some of your growth. Don't, don't just hire for the $2 million business you have today. Hire for the $20 million business to give yourself the capacity with that leader to grow. When you get the business to $20 million, that leader might not be the C-level person, but could be a great VP under somebody that's done it at that level. But what a part of the journey, and then they can learn from that person so someday they can be that leader. So you have to really kind of be mindful of where the company is in the stage it's at and the folks, what, what they've done. Because there are specialists, Sean, that are really good in early stage, and that's all they want to play in and work in. And there are specialists that want to be that want to work in the, the later stage companies, and that's all they want to work in. So you have to be able to be mindful of both. And then Peter, different stages of the company, the CEO role of the private company versus the CEO role of the public company. How's that change? It, it changes a lot. I mean, I think, look at the basics of blocking and tackling of, of a CEO and growth and driving is important in every part of your journey, earlier stage, your growth, and you're trying to get revenue and make a market and uh, become meaningful in that market and relevant. And then at some point, you have to become a profitable, meaning scaling revenue company. Then to be public, you have to be a predictable, compliant, scaling company, global company that is going to be able to provide public shareholders the ability of fact that they know that you're going to be around for a while, you're going to continue to innovate. And there's many things about your business that people can get excited about for the future. It's not just about one thing. It's about the many things of the company and it's where it's going. And that could include M&A. That could include new technology and innovation. That could inc include all of those things. It's kind of the pinnacle, John, of when you get to that, of being able to do that. Now, you can do that privately and you continue to do that. Many companies, that Uber did it for a very long time before they went, before they went public. And you get to great scale there. 
The thing that you have to understand when you become public is you have to be predictable every quarter and you have to be able to, you're accountable to the shareholders every quarter. Whereas private, you may not be, it may not be every quarter. It could be annually or however your shareholders want to look at it. Peter, before wrapping up, tell us about what should we expect or what, what can we look forward for you, your company in the future? Thank you for that, Sean. I, I think what you can look forward to demand science is continue to hear about our innovative approach to taking data, taking uh, data for sales and marketing professionals and continuing to make it very relevant, meaningful, actionable, so that they're winning with their clients, that they're, 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 they got great actionable leads that they can close on. They're building lists of, of, of folks that are actionable that they can contact. And that we're going to continue to be re- looked at as the top global, and I mean global player now, we're now in 14 countries, global player, that all businesses, whether you're a, a small business or an enterprise, you want to come to when you want to solve for your sales and marketing professionals and how, and you need help there. And Peter, if anyone wants to find out more about you, the company, what's the website? What's the, the best way to get more information? So thank you. Demandscience.com is where to come. And we welcome everybody to come uh, say hello. And we are, we're excited about where the market's going, Sean. And, and we're excited about what the future is going to bring in, in the digital economy and for sales and marketing professionals. And we're just excited to help. And we're 1,200 people strong now, uh, teammates strong and growing. We're probably going to get close to 2,000 over the next 12 to 18 months globally right now. So just uh, know that when uh, you come visit us and you look for help, you get a global company that can help you not only in the country you're in, but anywhere you want to go. Fantastic. And all that information is going to be in our show notes. For everyone out there, please visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com's our website. Check us out on every major podcast platform, The Silicon Valley Podcast. And with that, also, please connect with me on LinkedIn, Sean Flynn. All my social media handles are Sean Flynn SV. To find out more about what I do at the podcast and outside the podcast, I'm a mid-market investment banker. So please reach out to me if you have any questions or needs for that area. But with that, Peter, I got to say, I love this interview. I got a feeling our audience is going to listen to this multiple times. And after listening multiple times, give great reviews on iTunes, five stars there. But with that, Peter, I really want to thank you for being a guest today on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Thanks for having me, Sean. Happy holidays to all your viewers and to you as well. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.